We stand under the conviction that the church is built from the Word of God up. And so we turn to it each week. We've been several weeks in the book of Proverbs, and we are in Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. Proverbs chapter 9. And as we turn to God's Word as God's people, let's turn to Him in prayer as well. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are present, especially present as your people gather, and you have spoken. You have given us your word that we might know you and know how to walk according to your ways. And so, Father, for the sake of your name and for your, your people's sake, would you please equip us? Grow us, strengthen us, and receive glory in us. Do it through your word this hour. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Proverbs has taken us down pretty clearly two different paths. Two paths have been before us over and over and over again for eight chapters. And that's the the path of folly and the path of wisdom. And as we've gone down kind of each path, as the the author's taken us down each path, and each path has been further explored, we've seen consequences that were attached to and associated with each path. We've seen lifestyles that were attached to each path. And what was going on here, what the author is doing, what God is doing, is that he's letting us go down these paths, sharing what they're like and what their end is going to be, what their goal is, to both encourage us, in some cases, to follow this path, or to warn us, on the other hand, to stay away from certain paths. And so what chapter 9 does is it kind of wraps up. We're we're wrapping up one major section of the book of Proverbs in chapter 9, and it kind of wraps up all the first eight chapters well with this kind of great general summary of all the material, that all who would hear would know that there are are both wisdom and folly, are, are both inviting us to join their path, that both want us to hear their voice and be swayed by them. But what's really clear is that on each path there's associated life and death, that there is one path that you can follow that is going to be life and lead to life, and there is one that goes over to death. And so it, it kind of in chapter 9 is decision time. The two paths are before us. Chapter 9 begins with an invitation out again from wisdom inviting us in her direction. This time it's to a feast in her house. Verse 1 says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Wisdom has a big house. It's a fancy house and she's got a great or great meal that she's setting out, a feast that she's putting in front of those who she's calling out to. Portraying wisdom in this way affirms that, that wisdom and with her, with wisdom, is the good life. That this is the life that is to be desired and especially in comparison to folly, which we'll see at the end of chapter 9. And so where wisdom dwells, where she's at, so does all that is good in life. Even in the first two verses, and this invitation to her house with this meal is an invitation to life and, and is a picture of health. It's a picture of also celebration. 
Now this party so far sounds kind of like an exclusive party that not many get an invite to, but verse 3 tells us otherwise. So she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. So wisdom doesn't sit back with her fancy house and her great feast in her gated community and just enjoy the life of luxury and comfort alone. She spreads the table so that she might have people in. She, she even sends out her servants to summon all who would hear. And, and, and even this, this picture of these servants that are sent out is, is a picture of, of her kind of ambassadors. Wisdom's got some people employed that she's sending out to call more people in. These are messengers who are sent out to speak and invite on behalf of another. And so wisdom doesn't keep to herself because that's not her nature. Wisdom, which is from God doesn't have this nature that would just sit back in a gated community and just let everybody else go on their way, but she's out and she's inviting because she is reflecting the very nature of God who also doesn't keep to himself. He could have. He he needs nothing. He depends on no one. And yet, in the fullness of his grace and of his love, he creates. And he doesn't just create and say, just Figure this out, creation. We'll go from here. No, he speaks into that creation. And so he creates, he does these acts, and then he actually interprets them for us. He, he reveals himself to us. He speaks to us that we might know him. It's an invitation to, to not only know him, but to love him and adore him because he is worthy of that. But he goes even further than that. He even steps down into creation. And we have in Jesus the exact imprint of the nature of God, the radiance of his glory. He is not content to just be by himself. He, he wants us. He wants his creation to know him. And what does Jesus then do with his followers, those who come to him? He doesn't say, you know what, let's, just, let's, let's wall this little community off. Let's make the walls really high so no one can get in. And we won't need doors because we don't need to go out. No, he doesn't do that. He says, go. Go and bring in more. Right? Go spread the gospel. Go spread the news that you've received from me. You go take that everywhere that you go. Everywhere there's another person, you need to take that there. And so all of God's people's then are, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've then become an ambassador sent out to speak on behalf of the king, to invite people in on behalf of the king, to spread the gospel everywhere you go. And that's kind of the picture of wisdom and her servants here. And she sent her people out. That's the picture we see over and over again in the scripture. We have prophets and priests. They were to speak on On behalf of God, to the kings of Israel, to the Israelites, to others as well. That's the this is a picture of parents to their children. You have wisdom. If you have wisdom, then start being an ambassador of wisdom and start handing that wisdom off. This is pastors to churches, this is disciples to all nations. We are to go everywhere, and all of us are to be reflecting God's nature. And his nature is to not keep to himself, but to send people out that they might know him and love him. All the way, Luke 14 says, to the highways and to the hedges. Every little place that you can find. And it makes sense then that that wisdom that comes from God reflects his nature. And all that are wise reflect that nature as well. And so she sends out her servants, not content to just have an ornate house and great feast and have no one there. She sends out her servants. And here's who she calls to in verse 4. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense. So she sends out this invitation and she sends it out to this group that's called simple. Those who lack sense. In other words, they're saying that they lack judgments. Maybe even the will to think and act rightly. These are people that are essentially uncommitted. 
Naive may be another word for them as well. They're, they're simple. They lack sense. They're, they're not committed to any kind of lifestyle. Uh, you might have heard of the book. It's a children's book. It's called Are You My Mother? Have you heard of this, this story? It, we read it every day right now. It's Hallie's favorite book. So it's like, without fail, we're getting Are You My Mother? And she can actually probably read most of it herself, not because she knows how to read, but because she's memorized the words. So there's this little bird... In this egg, mama bird sees that the egg is jumping and flies off to go get some food, thinking the little bird's going to want to eat as soon as it hatches. Little bird hatches while she's away and wants to find his mother. Seems natural enough, and so he goes off in search for his mother, and this little bird has no clue. He goes, he sees a kitten. Are you my mother? Kitten doesn't respond. I keep, once again, I have this memorized as well. So he goes then after that, finds a hen, says, hen, are you my mother? You know, the hen's not his mother. Dog, are you my mother? No, dog's not his mother. Cow, are you my mother? And, and then it gets worse. So he, old car on the side of the road, uh, is that my mother? Boat down in this, this gorge, is that my mother? No, plane flying overhead, and finally the snort. And he's just all along, this bird is, are you my mother? Are you my mother? Just has no clue. He doesn't know his mother, and he doesn't even know that he's a bird. I'm assuming the whole time that if the cow said, yeah, I'm your mother, maybe you just raise the bird as a cow, and the cow would have thought, or the bird would have thought, I'm a cow. And, and it's that kind of type, the kind of uncommitted, doesn't know who he is, doesn't know where he's going, or, or even kind of what he is, that wisdom is calling to here. He's not specifically committed to anything. Not committed to evil necessarily, although not neutral, but kind of a free agent, not committed to any kind of lifestyle. And this is the simple one, the one that lacks sense, lacks judgment to act rightly and to think rightly, completely uncommitted. And, and these adjectives of, of being simple and lacking sense aren't what most want to claim. You don't want most of the time your name to be attached to, I'm simple. I lack sense. It's fine for a little bird in a story. But who wants to stand up and say, you know what, I know nothing and I'm a complete idiot. There's this pastor, author, commentator. His name is Ray Orland. We've used his quote several times in Proverbs. They have a mantra at their church. Their mantra is this, number one, I'm a complete idiot. But number two, my future is incredibly bright. And number three, anyone can get in on this. And as I've thought about that, this is the sense is verse 1 through 6. This is the outline of verse 1 through 6 here. Right? So number one, I'm a complete idiot. I, I am a simpleton. I, I lack sense. I, I don't, I'm uncommitted. I don't know how to act and to think rightly. Now that may be hard to want to admit, but it's only through number one that you can go on to number two and to number three. And so one offers hope. No one has to be somebody. You don't have to be accomplished in a certain way. In fact, I think number one reminds us that you have to be a nobody first before you then can move on to the bright future that you can get in on. It's the nobodies. It's the simple. It's the one who, ones who lack sense that God cries out to and says, come home. Join me. So it's worth recognizing and acknowledging the truth that we're nobodies if a somebody like God is inviting us in. So the question is, who are you? We don't need to be more concerned about being simple and being called simple and someone who lacks sense than about the invitation that we're getting from a somebody. And so that brings us to number two. My future is incredibly bright. So what is wisdom offering here? What's the invitation? We find out in verse 5. 
Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. So she's got this great feast prepared in a beautiful and spacious home to be enjoyed with, with company. And she's, she's done a really good job. She's prepared really well. Mixed wine, great meat has been readied and prepared for the people that would come. But we, we have to know that when wisdom is, is offering this, that more than a meal is being offered here. Right? She's inviting into her home. She's inviting for a meal. And, and all of those have overtones of much more than just a meal and coming over for a visit. It has overtones of, of intimacy and relationship. If you think back to chapter 7, there's this woman who meets a simple man, a fool on the road. And she invites him into her home. This was an adulterous woman. But what she say? Look, I have, I have a great couch. I've got these great these spices that are going. It probably smells really good. I've even prepared a meal for you. Come in. And what is she wanting? Not just to come over and have a cup of tea and a nice visit. Like she wanted more. She wanted closeness. She wanted intimacy with this man. Those are the overtones of meals and inviting in. I think of Isaiah chapter 55. Where the Lord says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Or why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligent to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. What does God have in mind there? Does he have in mind just eating and just drinking? No, he has relationship in mind. He wants us to come and to know him and be satisfied in him. He wants us to be satisfied in closeness in relationship to him. And that's what wisdom is inviting us to. That's what Proverbs 9 is inviting into. Close relationship. And close relationship with God is never and can't be some just casual relationship. It is life itself. Verse 6 goes on to say in Proverbs 9, Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. And so wisdom does is wisdom always puts us in right relationship with God. And is working on us that we might be in relationship and right relationship with God. Look in verse 10. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to start out with wisdom, you need to fear the Lord. That's, that's putting yourself underneath his authority. It's, it's being in awe of him. But it's also having intimacy with him. Knowing him, loving him, adoring him. That's what wisdom is wanting to do. That's the beginning And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And what wisdom is saying, come and dine with me and have life because that's life. The one who goes and dines at wisdom's house is going to be put in right relationship with God. And that's the beginning of wisdom and that's life. And so if life is in relationship with God, then I think we need to ask ourselves, then do we know God? Not just do we know about God, know some information and some facts, not just have we heard of God. Do you know God? Do you have a loving relationship with God? Is God your friend? That's, that's life. And the invitation is an invitation into relationship, into life. But there's more that wisdom offers as well. Verse 6 said that leave your simple ways and live. And also this, walk in the way of insight. So the invitation is to move you from your simple ways into ways of insight. I grew up in the country on a farm, and during the summer, when we were old enough, my brother and I would stay home, and we had plenty of things to do. Sometimes we had chores. A lot of times we'd play Nintendo. Watch ESPN Sports Center just on repeat over and over again. 
But my grandfather, he also worked out there, and he lived in town, and he would come out often. He's a good man. We like him very much. But we knew that when he came, if he was going to come get us, that he was going to put us to work. And so in our more selfish, lazy days, we'd kind of try to make ourselves a little bit scarce or act like we're not home if we hear the pickup coming in. Because we knew he's going to move me from Nintendo to work. That if we get in relationship with him, he's not going to leave us in the same place. He's going to move us in one direction. And that's what wisdom does. When you're in relationship with wisdom, she's going to move you from one place to another, from simple ways to the ways of insight. Wisdom is not going to leave you unchanged. You're not going to have a relationship with wisdom. You're not going to be a wise person and be unchanged. She invites and then she teaches you in relationship how to walk in the ways of wisdom, how to walk in insight. And this is how God always works. He invites and he empowers. He calls and he equips. He saves and he transforms over and over and over again. And so if you're brought into relationship with this God who is holy, who is good, who is gracious, you ought to be taking on the characteristics of this one that you're in close relationship to. You will change to be like him. And if you're not changing to be like him, if you think you are saved but not being transformed, then you need to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. So number two says that the future is bright, that life is being offered to you and transformation, moving from simple ways to ways of insight. And that moves us to number three. How do we get in on this? And wisdom tells us in verse 4, she says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. In verse 6, she says, leave your simple ways. So turn and leave. We've seen these before. This is speaking of, if you're thinking of it holistically, this is, this is speaking of repentance. Of turning away from something, your simple ways, your people that you had before, and to something else. Turning away and to, it's, it's coming to your senses. It's coming to a right understanding. It's, it's understanding things the way they're meant to be. One author says that repentance speaks of the challenge to a change of mind and purpose that is for the better, but that turns on a frank acknowledgement of being previously wrong and for the worse. So when we repent, we are saying that we know what we thought or did before was wrong. So the uncommitted way of before, the one who is lacking sense and lacked of will and judgment to act rightly, that kind of way needs to be left, knowing that that way wasn't actually good or even neutral, that we were walking in a way that was going to lead to destruction if we kept on it being simple. And so you get in on this by turning and leaving, and so are we willing to turn and leave in order that we might have life? That's God's invitation for us, and it's God's invitation for us repeatedly. Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts his ministry and he says, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do you get in on this? Repent. Repent. Life under the good reign and the good rule of God is offered to those who will turn and leave and follow him. Anyone, anyone can get in on this. No one has to be somebody to receive this invitation. God's got being somebody covered. He doesn't need that. But what he does say and what he does require of us is that we repent that we turn and that we leave. And that's what wisdom wants. Wants relationship. A relationship that begins with the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the Holy One and invites us into this. We have to turn and we have to leave. And as good as this invitation is, there are going to be some that are never going to listen to this. And they're called scoffers. They're beyond the simple, right? The simple are just kind of uncommitted. They're not neutral, but they're kind of uncommitted. Scoffers are very much committed. 
They're committed so much that they'll mock, right? They're, they're committed to going the other direction. The simple are just uncommitted and open. The scoffers are not open. They refuse to listen to correction. They refuse to humble themselves under any sort of authority. They can't receive from anyone. This is the scoffer. I think I just described every single person on the internet. Just, this is who they are. Scoffers get easily offended because what do they have to receive from anyone? What does anyone have to tell them? What do they even need? And they can't seem to ever keep their offenses to themselves. It's not that just they can have an offense and just absorb it. They have to make sure that other people know that they've been offended and how they've been offended. That's a scoffer. They have to yes, but every single conversation aimed at them. Aim something on them, like, yeah, but, you know. And then they, they don't sit on defense. They attack. They go after things. One commentator said in passing that this such a person is full of himself and contemptuous of others. It's a good summary. Having a word with a person like this then is dangerous. As we see, verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. There's a time when reproving, correcting can actually be injurious to you. That actually doesn't help move in the right direction. The scoffer doesn't just let correction come and then roll off his back and forget about it. That's not what the scoffer does. The scoffer turns and attacks. The scoffer is upset about everything all the time. And so you, you want to correct, you want to point something at them, they're going to turn and go on the attack. And while it may seem to them that they're just giving the world their wisdom, they're spewing out folly with every word. And I can't help but notice as we go through this, that there's just this general label given here of scoffer. It's not, it does not say, uh, watch out for the one that scoffs at this kind of teaching, or the one that scoffs in this sort of setting. Be careful the one that scoffs in the classroom, or the one who scoffs at work. And we're not given that classification. And so it seems that this word scoffer is actually just characterizing their lives. That means that if you're a scoffer in the car, that you can't be corrected in the car and you think that you're right, then you're a scoffer probably. That means that if there are areas in our lives where we can't be corrected, we, we can't expect them to be contained to just that area and then for not to be pervasive in our lives. Because that kind of pride is this destructive rebel force that likes to spread everywhere. And so you're not just like, I'm a scoffer when I'm here, but not a scoffer in general. We have that kind of pride in us, if those kind of things are, are in us and they're characterizing us, then that kind of pride doesn't need to be contained, it needs to be put to death. Now, it would be nice as if we're going through this, and if we, everybody would just wear a label again, right? If we could color code evil so that we would know, like, I'm not going to correct this person because it's only going to hurt. If we, if we could just identify, then that would help us avoid abuse, but we can. Verse 8 goes on to say, Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will, still, or he will be wi- still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. And so it's almost as if the label comes, the test comes when you actually do try to correct, and then you find out who someone is like and what they're like. Correction, then, isn't just for the fool. 
Correction then, according to these verses, isn't just for the simple. Correction is actually for those who are already wise too. It's for all of those. This means that no matter where we fall in kind of the wisdom spectrum, little wisdom, great wisdom, that everyone still needs more. Everyone is still in need of correction. And so there's, here's a gauge with how to know how wise we are, how easily, how readily, how joyfully do you receive correction when it comes. No matter the source. The wise are able to receive correction. They're not too wise. They're not beyond learning. They're not beyond correction. They recognize their need for growth and they're eager to receive correction. They actually love it, it says. They want it to come. Christians, I think genuine Christians, do some strange things sometimes after they hear really good teaching and preaching from the Scripture. I've heard it several times at Secret Church. People are just like, man, that was so hard and so good. And it's like they're saying how painful it was in joy. It's really strange. You ever done that? Like, man, that was brutal. And they're talking about it in joy. What are, you, what are you saying? If you were an outsider, you'd be like, what in the world is going on here? How can something be brutal and yet so good all at the same time? How can it be hard and good? How can it have conviction and joy? Well, the, the reason is because they love correction. And yeah, there's all sorts of pain. It can be brutal. But oh, to know that we're being, we're being corrected and trained and, and pointed in the right direction. Like it hurts that the scalpel has to be Taken to the body, but oh, the joy of having the cancer ripped out. And the wise love that. Correction is is hard for us all, but the wise understand that it's needed and that it's good, and then they meet it with love. So unlike the scoffer, the wise then turn around and, and they're hard to offend. And they don't have to yes but every single conversation that they have. They don't have to defend themselves. They can let themselves receive and be corrected. The wise know how to sit under authority. They know how, to correct, they know how to let correction make them wiser. They know how correction makes them grow. And so right here, right, right, do we need some more wisdom? <laughs> do you take correction well all the time? But that's a mark of one who knows God. who One who has the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, is receiving God as our authority over us. It's letting God have his say in our lives and in every area of our lives. That's what fear of the Lord is. And so how does God have his say in us? He has his say in us through his word that he has handed down to us. Given in part, breathed out in part, according to 2 Timothy 3, for correction. And that's just the normal life of someone who follows after God. You are sitting under God's authority that you might be corrected. And so driving this joyful reception of correction is our fear of the Lord, our knowledge of the Holy One, our love and adoration of Him. Verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. He says, for by me your days will be multiplied and your years and years will be added to your life. So if you are wise, you're wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone bear it. So number three said that anyone can get in on this, but there's this responsibility. There's this decision to make that this path has been laid before us. But we are the ones who are to receive wisdom, to turn and to leave and to go after wisdom. Each, verse 12, is going to bear the consequences of that. No one can get wisdom for another. 
No one can get folly for another. Each is going to stand before God. Hopefully that's a, a helpful thought, a sobering thought that will help us think through the invitation that folly gives in the next few verses. Help us to hear it rightly. The wound of folly, verse 13, is loud. She is seductive and she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes her seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So as wisdom is active in inviting the simple, so too is folly. Almost like parallel along there with them. And even you can see, you can compare and contrast the, the, the text from 1 through 6 to now 13 through 17. They're, they're very similar in what's going on. Very parallel. Wisdom is calling and folly is loud. And, and it seems like this is a pattern that we see that, that where wisdom is, there's folly as well. And this is in other places in Scripture. right? As, as messengers go out with the light of the gospel... Satan disguises himself as an angel of light at times. Jesus told this parable of a man who sowed good seed. And during the night, an enemy came and sowed seed. Only it was bad seed. It was weeds. Do you see a strategy here? Yeah, we have Jesus telling us that there's these soils and sometimes a bird will come and swoop up the seed and take it away. That's a strategy as well from the enemy to steal. But there's this consistent strategy you see of of just sowing alongside and in a unique way I think Proverbs continues to show us uh, that evil is zealous for us that evil wants us uh, that evil that folly wants uh, a reception she wants an audience she wants to be heard she wants to be received and so the 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 warning is going out to all of us proceed carefully because that they are sown alongside and they look a lot alike what's sown looks similar What's good seed is going to look similar for a while to weeds, but one's a counterfeit. And, and so how can you tell the difference? Well, you've always rightly heard, hopefully, that the way to tell a counterfeit is to know the authentic one really, really well, the original. But what if we're all complete idiots? Or what if we're simple? What if we lack sense? Then how do we tell the difference then? How do we, how are we not, what if we don't know what's authentic? How do we go in a way that's actually good? Well, this isn't exhaustive. There's probably plenty that the scripture, there is plenty the scripture says. There's plenty that we could say. But Proverbs, I think, points us to one thing over and over again in eight chapters to help us to make this decision even as simple ones. And I think that Proverbs points to fruit. And not just fruit, but fruit over time. Fruit that even simple ones can see, right? Wisdom has fruit, all sorts of fruit. She walks in the ways of justice and righteousness. She's protecting from evil, right? She, she sheds light on the path so you know your direction, so you're not walking into danger kind of haphazardly. That's, that's some of the fruit that we've seen of wisdom so far. So, so wisdom has fruit, and it, and it bears fruit over time. Well, folly has fruit too. Lots of it. And, and a lot of it is good fruit. You can see it here. We're going to see some more of it. Like, it's good It's been dangled out in front of us as sweet, as something that actually is appealing to us. It is good fruit for a time. But it always goes sour. And it always leads to one place with time. And that's death. Eight chapters, now we're nine chapters into Proverbs. And over and over and over again, we see different folly 
paths of folly coming after us, tempting us, appealing to us. And every time, they're leading down to Sheol, to death, over and over again. If you give enough time, that's where they're going. And so I think that there's some, some caution there for us. We need to beware of, of letting some influence in our lives without having at least a sense of fruit from that influence over time. Paul uses that with the Corinthians, right? He says, I live my life in front of you. I've been I'm speaking plainly to you. I lived in front of you. Know me. So beware of the people you don't know that are having influence. They're actually calling themselves super apostles and all these things. Like, I'm, I was with you like a father. He uses that and he says, beware of their influence. But we also need to beware of, of the opposite, of pushing away influence where we know the fruit over time. Right? We, we've seen it, we know it, we've heard it, and if we don't like it, that doesn't mean we should push it away. Maybe that's someone coming to correct, and we need to love that correction. So we need to beware of both. Beware of, of letting someone have some influence or too much influence without any sense of their fruit over time. And beware of pushing away someone if we have no idea of their fruit, or if we know their fruit over time and it's been good and we just don't like it anymore. We need to beware of pushing that one away. I think that's wisdom. I hear folly... She plants alongside wisdom, and, and there are so many parallels, but there are a few really key distinctions. So wisdom has set up a great house. She's prepared a great feast. She's sent out her servants. They're all calling on high to everyone who would come to the simple. Come in here. Folly is doing something similar. Only she doesn't seem to have such a great house. Not much is said about it. She doesn't seem to have prepared a great feast. She's just sitting down. Hanging out, calling people in. Yeah, she's out in the open. She's available to all, but she's out there as a rival and as a counterfeit. And listen to the counterfeit invitation that she gives. Verse 16, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now, folly's after the same thing that wisdom is after. She wants a relationship with the simple. She wants them to come in and dine with her and be with her. Like she's trying to get closeness and intimacy. But she's not offering the same things. There's no meats here, which, man, for a lot of us, that's into the party, right? What are you preparing? Bread and water? Get some meat there. There's no mixed wine. So she hasn't sacrificed and worked hard to make sure she gets the right kind of mixture of things and aged things over time. She hasn't done any of that. She has bread and water. And beyond that, we find out, right, verse 17, stolen bread, stolen water, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And so for all of those who, are, who have been going with us through Proverbs, like there should be all sorts of alerts going off in our minds here. Uh, yeah, it seems to be clear, like stolen, all right, we don't like that. That seems to be bad. Secret, yeah, that seems to be bad too. But, but the wise, or those growing in wisdom, should be onto her game because of prior warnings. Right? The bread is the bread of secrecy. In, in, in chapters before, we've, we've seen this evil gang. They keep coming, showing up the doorstep and say, hey, come out with us. We're going to have excitement. We're going to get loot. We're going to share it together. It's going to be great. Just come on out. And what chapter 4, verse 17 says is they're going to eat the bread of wickedness. So it's similar. They wait in ambush to, to kill an innocent victim and share the spoils, and they're going to eat the bread in secret. Just their gang's going to know about it. Just them. They're going to spread the spoils. They're eating the bread of wickedness, the bread of secrecy. And so I think that the wise do well to stick to the light and bask in it no matter how uncomfortable. Stay away from these secret places where bread can be eaten in secret. And then we have this stolen water. Do you remember how chapter 5 used water? I'll let you rediscover that for yourselves if you don't. 
give you the joy of that privilege. But given that use of water in chapter 5, this offer of sweet water here might entail more than just drinking. And it's no surprise, right? That woman folly would offer more that might tempt and appeal. In chapter 5, the woman that was there in chapter 5, her lips, they they dripped honey and her speech was like oil. It was sweet and seductive. What do we have here? Folly is seductive. Verse 13, the water that is stolen is sweet. Verse 17. Right? So there's, there's parallels over and over again. And so we have these, these warning bells going off in our minds like this is bad in so many ways. We're picking up on all these signs and it's, it's going in a wrong direction. Folly is a woman, though, that, that does have appeal. She does have sway. There's power in her offer, especially in her offer of secrecy. Especially in her offer of the forbidden. See, in the secret and forbidden places, that's where sin thrives. Sin loves those kind of places. That's where it seems like dwelling is sweet and pleasant. Now, Paul recognized this in in chapter 7 of the book of Romans. What did he say? Like, the law went out before me and it said, don't covet. But then what did it make me want to do? It made me want to covet. And he didn't blame the law then. He said, that was already in me. It was forbidden, and then I started doing it. Some of us have a sense of that as well. Like You say don't do it, that's exactly what you want to do. There's power in this appeal to secrecy and the forbidden here. She's saying, don't, you know, we shouldn't be eating this bread, but I, that's what I'm offering. And some people are like, I want that. Just because we're not supposed to. There's some power in secrecy. Especially in the realm where we talked about in chapter 5, this water and this appeal to intimacy sexually like there is great amount of power in in sexual intimacy being in secret that's outside of God's design has all sorts of power in its secrecy and we need to beware while secret the fruit seems to remain sweet and pleasant but over time evaluating fruit over time it's not going to stay there listen to verse 18 So while she makes a good appeal and while she has some sweet and pleasant fruit that she's offering over time, this is where it's going. Verse 18, but he does not know, the simple does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So if you've heard me talk about this story or if you've watched or read it, you know the the kind of the trek of, of Frodo in Lord of the Rings. He's following a guide by the name of Gollum. He's a treacherous guy, but he knows where he's going. He's effective. And he's taking him to, on the secret path, up some stairs through a tunnel to Mordor, where they need to go to destroy the ring. Without him, he's essential. Without him, they don't know where they're going. And he's leading them, under the cover of secrecy, to a place where they can destroy the ring. And they're supposed to go through a tunnel. And Frodo is hesitant to go in this tunnel. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? It's a little bit creepy, but he's going to take it on because this is the only path forward. But as he enters the tunnel, in the movie especially, you see this. What does he start seeing in every corner? There's there's cobwebs, and and they're not just empty cobwebs, like it's dusty and empty. They're full of victims, Full of death. The whole tunnel. Everywhere you go in the tunnel is full of death. And he soon finds out that that he's not alone here. That he has all sorts of victims around him. 
And that's what verse 18 is saying. The NLT puts it this way, that the, mean, that the men don't realize that her former guests are now in the grave. Frodo walks into the tunnel and all the guests that were formerly there are there with him. And they're all dead. And that's where he's at. That's the invitation that Folly is sending out. Come join me. It's going to be a great party. And in every single corner, all these guests are there and they're all dead. All Folly's guests eat and drink death. And so her fruit, over time, although at times it may have seemed sweet, at times it may have been pleasant, they may have enjoyed the hiddenness and the secrecy of it all, they may have enjoyed the forbiddenness of it all, and that they can just stick it to other people and do it anyway, even if they tell them not to. After time, this is where it goes. This is where it always goes. The fruit over time, every time, is death. And actually, that was Folly's goal in the beginning. And this explains over and over again why she's so zealous. She wants you to come in so that she might have you as her prey, as her victim. This explains why she doesn't prepare a feast well. She cares nothing for the people coming in. This, this explains why she sacrifices nothing at all for anyone. As her goal isn't for their good. But it also explains why she'll receive anybody. Anybody willing to come. And so the voice of folly in her invitation proves to be deadly. But here's the good news is that God told us about it. He just gave it to us. Here's what folly's trying to do. Here's how she appeals to you. And this is where it leads. So that we might know her voice in a sense and be able to then avoid it. That we wouldn't be her guests and one of her victims as well. That is that God cares so much about complete idiots that he speaks definitively to us that we might avoid folly in the path of death. That's really good. He cares so much about us that he doesn't just speak to it, that he speaks definitively and ultimately by taking on flesh. He speaks in this one great way in his son, the imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. He comes to us. And what does he come saying to us? That he came to give death? No. I did not come to bring judgment. I came to bring life. I came to give you life. And what kind of life? The abundant life, the good life. This is the kind of life that wisdom has been inviting us into all along. She has been pointing us to the abundant life that's only found in a relationship with God that we find in Christ. This is the life that Jesus came to give. Have we heard his call? Come, follow me. Have we turned? Have we left all that we might have life in Jesus? If not, I think that's the invitation. Would you repent and leave your life, your ways, and turn to a better life with better ways. With a a voice that will never call you out for your harm, but will always bring correction, training, reproof for your good. Would you turn and believe in that voice? And if you have turned and left all for him, know that your life that you're experiencing in relationship with God right now will only give way to life. And praise God for that. And that's what we celebrate together as a family of God. God, this voice has told us to celebrate as family, as the people of God, to remember the life that he offered to us, the life that we have, and the life that we will have by taking the Lord's Supper. 
We're remembering that Jesus came to give us life and that's found in his body that is broken and his blood that's poured out. It's through believing in that, through trusting in that for our life, that we have life. And he told us to do this meal in remembrance of what he has done. But he also told us that this meal is a meal where we take together of the one bread, of the one cup, and we're reminding one another and we're reminding uh, our own souls that this is a meal that we're to take until he returns to bring us more life, life eternal. And so if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've turned and left, come and take this meal. Be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you're not a believer, turn. Believe in Jesus. Follow after him. Give him your life and find it in him, we pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for offering us life. We were simple. We're complete idiots. And yet... Our future is incredibly bright and we can get in on the life, the abundant life that you've offered through the work of Christ who has, who has died and has been raised. May all who find life in him be encouraged, strengthened, dependent. And Father, we want to pray for those who haven't found their life in Jesus that are just existing. We want to pray that the offer of life would seem sweet and that they would come and taste and see that you are good. That you would give them life. God, we ask for the sake of your name and for your glory. Amen.